Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in today's conversation, we have the privilege to speak with Bryce Bigham. Uh, The topic of our conversation is a biblical theology of irony. But uh, before we begin our chat, welcome to the podcast, Brother Bryce. So good to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and this is uh, not the very first time you've been on the Covenant Podcast. I believe uh, you've been on the show uh, once before with the other uh, CBTS administrators to be able to talk about uh, CBTS, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, again in just a moment. But it has been quite some time that uh, you since you've been on. And uh, we want our audience to know a little bit about yourself before we begin our conversation on biblical theology of irony. So can you go ahead and uh, do that? Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yes, uh, my name is Bryce Bigham, and it's my privilege to serve at uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary as the Director of Marketing and Development. I've been uh, here for about three years here in Owensboro, Kentucky. And I also serve as a deacon here at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And in addition to those things, it's uh, I, I'm, I've been blessed by my wife of eight years and uh, now four children. We just had our uh, fourth child actually last month. So uh, just rejoicing uh, in that, that provision uh, in, in these uh, later days as well. Thank you, Bryce, for that introduction. I know I had the privilege of meeting you for the first time at this year's Covenant Conference up in Louisville, and Lord willing, I'm looking forward to being able to join you guys again next year. Um, hopefully, I'll be a little bit more proficient in the sound booth if I'm asked to do that again. But I, I do remember during that conference, there had been an announcement made about the CBTS building project there and was hoping that maybe you could provide our listeners with an update on the status of that building project. I mean, as an employee, you probably have some inside information that our listeners would like to hear. So uh, what do you have for us today on that particular issue? Yeah, it's it's exciting to talk about. I am so thankful for God's provision for the church and the seminary. It's something that's really unfolded over the last year or so. Uh, We've seen God's hand uh, tremendously in, in all of this. Uh, with the direction guiding us with uh, whether we should build or whether we should renovate an existing property, providing one for us, uh, providing so many of the funds for that. It's, it's really been an amazing thing to see over the last year. Uh, but now we're, we're uh, past all those things and we're into the actual execution of a renovation uh, phase. And that, that seems to be going very well. I've, I was just over there early this week and a lot of the walls have gone up uh, the building was completely gutted, and uh, I think about maybe a quarter of the walls were removed and and kind of moved to different places. So most of that's been put back, and I I see there was a lot of uh, electrical work going on and HVAC work. So we're very hopeful that we'll be in there uh, in the first half of 2023, uh, perhaps in uh, quarter one. Uh, but it's 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 been an exciting thing to see. It, it's it's a really uh, great providence for the church as we've been growing over the last couple of years, uh, as well as the seminary. It kind of gives us a space that we haven't had before. Uh, we will, uh, God willing, have our own lecture hall in the building. 
Uh, that's not a dual purpose space as far as uh, changing it around for the worship service on the Lord's Day. Um, and we'll also have a bigger library space as well as administrative offices. So we're really grateful. It's going to give us uh, much more of a campus uh, type uh, feel as a seminary. We hope it'll be a blessing to all of our students. So we give praise to God for all that he's done in, in regards to that. And I, I, I did also want to share, you, you mentioned the Covenant Conference, Dewey. Uh, we actually just launched, uh, I believe late last week, the uh, website for the 2023 conference, and it's going to be held again in Louisville, Kentucky on March 23rd to the 25th. And this year we're going to do the topic on how then should we worship, uh, kind of a uh, take, a spinoff of uh, Dr. Waldron's uh, recent book. Uh, we're just going to consider the subject of worship. We're going to have uh, Dr. Waldron there as well as Conrad and Bayway and John Miller and others uh, speaking particularly on the subject of worship. So we look forward to that. If you want to learn more about that, uh, you can visit the website now. It's cuffcon.org, and you can register there or learn more uh, about that conference uh, coming up. So that's that's uh, just some of the many activities that are going on around here. Yeah, thank you for that, brother. That's helpful. Uh, we've been able to uh, introduce you to our audience and you've been able to give us an update about CBTS and the various things happening at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. So this may seem like a little bit of a hard pivot now, but uh, that's okay. We're going to go ahead and begin to jump into the topic for our discussion, which is a biblical theology of irony. And perhaps uh, it could be helpful for us to tell our audience uh, about your interest in biblical theology, maybe uh, opportunities you've had to teach about biblical theology or why you think uh, biblical theology is important. So uh, can you answer that however you see fit, brother? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll start off by saying I'm certainly not an expert uh, in the field, just a, a student that really enjoys uh, biblical theology. Uh, for those who, who don't know, biblical theology, as it's come to be called, it really falls under the fourfold encyclopedia of theology, which is exegetical historical, systematic, and practical theology. It falls under exegetical theology, and it's really its, its pinnacle, as some have said. And it, it, works, and it works in perfect harmony uh, with all those other areas, uh, systematic theology, historical. It works together with those to kind of create uh, the full picture of God's revelation. And I, I, Richard Barcellus has said, I think this is very helpful, a uh, simple definition of biblical theology is, the Bible's theology of the Bible. And he goes on to say it can be defined further as the articulation of the history of redemption, utilizing the principles revealed in the Bible about its unfolding purpose. And, and I, I love to see this. Uh, I love biblical theology because I love uh, tracing the development of the revelatory works and words of the divine author of scriptures. It's just glorious to me to, to trace these themes down throughout uh, a dozen different writers and see the one author really kind of show himself as he organically develops uh, these lines of thoughts would teach us about himself and how he's revealed himself in his word. So that's, that's, that's why I love biblical theology. Amen. Well, we, we talked briefly before we got the recording started today that, um, you know, I have done my fair share of biblical theology studies as a seminarian. And you think of, and like, uh, Curtis Voss, Graham Goldsworthy, D.K. Beale, Benjamin Glad, so many who've who've really paved the way to sharpen a 
a Protestant and, and particularly a Reformed understanding of biblical theology. But as it pertains to our conversation today, perhaps many of our listeners are in the same boat as me. I haven't really ever done a deep dive into a biblical theology of I, and, and that's going to be the epicenter of today's conversation. So, Bryce, um, let, let's let's transition there. Let's let's talk about a biblical theology of irony. First, how do you define irony and how does irony intersect with biblical theology as a discipline? Yes, I want to start uh, to answer that question just by giving a little bit of background of what made me interested in this specific topic. I was given the opportunity to teach uh, a couple of Sunday school lessons in the series our church was doing on biblical theology. We were just going through several different themes uh, to consider as kind of an illustration of what biblical theology was for our church. And I, I was kind of thinking about how I would best fill uh, my two-week slot that I had and uh, was just feeling, uh, I, I had seen um, uh, Greg Beale's book, uh, Redemptive Reversals, and I'd, I'd been interested in it for several years. This is a book, it's about uh, a little under 200 pages. I was a little bit familiar with the synopsis of that book, and I, I, I really wanted to uh, to examine it in more detail and read the book and kind of grapple with what he was saying there because going through the COVID times, uh, it was just concerning to me to see a lot of the things that happened uh, concerning things from th that were out of our control and were nothing like what we've experienced. And it was just easy, I think, for some of us to get a little bit uh, down and concerned about things seeming to happen that uh, seem a little bit concerning or scary. And uh, I found it to be very encouraging for myself uh, to see how God works in the scriptures through this principle of irony, uh, which I'll unpack a little bit more. I felt it would be encouraging uh, for the people as well, and I think it was. Uh, but all that to introduce, uh, what is irony? And I think it'll make more sense what I said as I define this. Uh, but irony, uh, for those who are not English majors, is the use of words to express something other than uh, and especially the opposite of the literal meaning. It's, it's basically incongruity uh, between the actual result of a sequence of events and the normal or expected result, kind of the technical uh, definition. Uh, but the way I illustrated it for our church is I, I, I showed them a picture of uh, the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. And perhaps you can remember from your childhood when uh, Wiley Coyote, who's always trying to catch the Roadrunner, he paints a picture of a tunnel onto the side of a cliff. And he's going to catch the Roadrunner who's supposed to run into the side of the cliff wall. Well, the, the Roadrunner comes uh, very fast and just runs right into the, the, the tunnel. And you see the Coyote's like... How did that happen? I, I don't know how that happened. And then what does he do? He, he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go chase him. So he runs into the what he thinks is a tunnel, uh, what the roadrunner just ran into, and now he, he runs into the cliff. So the, the principle there is sometimes the way God works, oftentimes the way God works is the very instrument uh, through which people think they're opposing God is the instrument by which he judges them and the very thing by which he delivers his people. And, and we see this principle of irony throughout. And, and Beale says in the book, I think this is helpful, uh, we can define irony generally as the doing or saying of something that implies its opposite. What is done or said is really the reverse of what at first appears to be the case. God frequently deals with humanity in an ironic way. That is true in his acts of judgment and salvation. So the irony is one of the major thematic threads tying together 
the whole scripture. And when I first read that, I thought, man, irony is really one of the major thematic threads tying together the whole scripture. So I really want to see you make the case here. And, and I, I, as I finished that book, I, I, it absolutely is. And I think, I think you guys will see it as we move on and, and illustrate this a little bit. I, I do believe irony and, and, and this, this will, you know, a lot of us know this, but uh, as we, as we actually talk about the word irony, you'll see that it, it's kind of ingrained in the whole uh, revelation of God. It, it is a major thematic thread tying together the whole of scripture. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. And, uh, yeah, I think we're all interested to tell us what you have to say and to prove that, or at least you were convinced by it. So maybe uh, you can present it in such a way that maybe our listeners will be convinced by it as well. So uh, to do so, I'll ask you this. What is retributive irony? And uh, after presenting retributive irony for some time, can you give our listeners some applications in light of retributive irony? Yes. Yeah. And there's basically... Um... I, I basically have two categories that I unpacked this under. And, and the first was uh, ret- retributive irony. And the second is redemptive, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but the main idea behind the retributive irony, uh, which is really all throughout the scriptures, is the ironic judgment of the wicked. And this basic principle, I believe this comes from Beale, is God judges people by means of their own sin. And the wicked, and, and this is this reality that the wicked, they, they appear to prosper often over God and his people, but, but in reality, uh, God is magnifying. He's using them in their uh, craftiness to uh, magnify glory for himself by bringing them to an unexpected ruin by those very means which they thought to be their victory. And uh, we see this uh, really clearly. It's, it's all throughout the wisdom literature. And just to give you a few examples of that, in Psalm uh, 7, uh, verse 14, the behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. And then Psalm 9 is is similar to this. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And we see this as well in uh, Proverbs. I won't read this whole passage, but uh, this is familiar to many of you, probably from the first chapter of Proverbs. If sinners entice you, do not consent. They say, come lie with us. Let us lie wait in ambush uh, for blood. Uh, uh, Ambush the innocent without reason. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. So these these wicked men, they're ready to to, uh, ambush the godly, the righteous. But but, uh, Solomon says, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait, not for the righteous, they lie and wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Uh, and then and Job as well. He frustrates, this is Job chapter 5, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own 
craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And then in 18, his, his strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. So you see it's all over the wisdom literature that when the wicked seek to oppress the people of God or, or even, even uh, oppose God, the means by which they, they try to do this is the means of their own uh, condemnation, their own fall. And just, just to give some biblical, and this, is, this, this principle here is very clear in the wisdom literature, but it's, it's throughout uh, the, the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. You see several uh, biblical examples of the ironic judgment of the wicked. And, and you really start to see this right off the bat in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here this principle here that the act of uh, Satan, the, the, uh, the serpent, uh, bruising the head of the offspring is the, is the means by which he himself is crushed. And we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit later in a moment here. Uh, but you see other examples of this. Uh, I think a prime example of this is, is Pharaoh. Uh, the, he's the killer of God's sons uh, or, or wants to be the killer of God's sons. But he, ha- he has his own son killed. And this, just, this story just drips with irony all throughout. Uh, he orders the Hebrew boys to be, what, cast into the Nile River uh, to be drowned in there. And, 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 and he, he says, who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Uh, But God kills the firstborn son of every Egyptian family, including Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh who uh, wanted to kill God's son, as as he says in Exodus 4. Uh, But then what does God do? He judges Pharaoh by drowning his army in the Red Sea. So you have here uh, Pharaoh's act of oppressing the people of God is the very same thing that God brings judgment upon Pharaoh at the conclusion of the Exodus event. Uh, but you also have other instances of this throughout. We could, I can name so many, but uh, you think of Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech conspires uh, in Judges 9 uh, to put to death uh, the sons of Gideon. He puts them to death on a single stone, all 70, 70 of them, with the uh, exception of Jotham, uh, who prophesies him. And then what? You have, uh, you have Abimelech is killed uh, by a woman dropping a stone on his head. Uh, you have Absalom, who uses his hair to charm. His, his hair, his good looks, his flowing hair, we're told uh, by the author. It just drips with irony when he describes his hair, how he had to cut it. It was so heavy. Uh, well, well, his hair is what's caught in a tree. So the very thing which, with which he won the hearts of Israel from David to make them rebel against David, is the thing that catches him uh, in the tree, uh, so he's executed. Uh, you have this is this is maybe the most uh, clear example. It just the the, the story just evokes uh, so much wonder at the providence of God, even those names not mentioned in the book of Esther. Uh, you you can certainly trace his hand of providence through the whole book. Uh, we have uh, uh, Haman, the enemy of the Jews. He 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 has these uh, gallows constructed for Mordecai. Uh, and then he himself, it, when his plot is discovered uh, because of the uh, because of uh, Esther's action in bringing the attention to the king, uh, he's hanged on those same gallows. And that that's a very vivid illustration of this principle 
and uh, that that the that what the what the enemy of God seeks to construct for the destruction of the people of God ends up being his own uh, noose. You see that very clearly in, in Haman. Uh, you see the same thing in Daniel. Daniel uh, has uh, a lion's den prepared uh, for him uh, by the wicked attendants of the king who are trying to trap him because they're they, they don't like him. Uh, but what it's in, what ends up happening? Well, well, Daniel's delivered from the lions, and the, the men who constructed the the lions den and and who had this all set up uh, are are themselves thrown into it with their own families. So what, that that very thing that they set up to oppose him, uh, they end up receiving uh, themselves. Now this all this all kind of builds up. There are many. There's so many examples of this. You can probably think of this yourself now. But I think all these things they they really they really uh, prepare us for what I think is the irony of ironies of ironies. Uh, this is the, the sort of crown jewel of retributive uh, irony uh, in, in the scriptures. And that, that is what? That is uh, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, uh, where the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head. And this was fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And God judges Satan by means of his own, own attempt to bruise the son and defeat the purpose of God in Christ. Uh, but I think what is the irony of ironies of ironies here is that men and women who were the sons of the serpent had their sins laid upon the son of God. Here you have, uh, we're, we're prepared throughout the whole scriptures to see a retributive justice. It does come to the sinner. Uh, but then you have the sinless son of God who 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 has retributive justice placed upon him that was not his to 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 actually bear that 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 curse that was due to the the sinful uh, sons of the serpent gets placed upon the sinless son of god and everything you were prepared for throughout the whole old testament uh to see retributive justice just leaves the disciples stunned like like our our savior was hung on a cross the cross of shame and humiliated and 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 this is this i think this is what this whole principle prepares us for is is to be a teaching tool to show us and, and give significance to the cross of jesus christ and what he was going to do there to bring uh, many sons to glory uh so that that's a little bit about retributive justice uh exemplified and I, I think i think the principles there for application are uh perhaps evident to many uh but just to just to kind of expound a little bit on it i think uh i think we should be really encouraged when we when we see things like this uh, throughout the scriptures and i'm going to talk a little bit more about this under redemptive uh irony in our next question but uh we're we're tempted to every generation of christians uh, we 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 uh, we live in a now and not yet world. Uh, we have uh, the age the age to come has broken in to this age, so we see glorious things in this age. We see uh, the new creation is breaking in uh, through through the the mission of the church as Jesus continues to work uh, at the right hand of the Father to bring all things to completion. Uh, but we also see that, that this is a time of humiliation still for the church. That 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 those two things continue uh, side by side. Uh, until until Christ returns, uh, so we're we're tempted as a church, I think, uh, in every generation, to fear the advance of the enemy. Uh, we find ourselves in times in church history where uh, we're we're going to have times where we're we're 
a little bit like a Mordecai and Esther, where we're we're faced with great adversity, and maybe maybe and and, and a lot of people around the world with with actual death and and uh, persecution. It's happening right now outside of the West, and and maybe it will happen here too. Uh, so so should we should we should we fear in those times? Well, the, the example of Scripture is uh, justice will be carried out. And, and we don't need to fear uh, these tyrants, these, these persecutors, because all these things are ordered by God as sort of a divine rug pull for the wicked. And will they have success when it comes to the bodies of the people of God? Yes, and they do. Uh, but we can be confident that God is over all of these things, guiding them with his providential hand. And sometimes he encourages us by showing us in this life his retributive justice, that rug pull uh, where the enemy thinks, so, oh, you know, I've got the people of God cornered. Uh, I'm going to destroy the church. You think about those famous uh, sayings all throughout history, uh, particularly maybe the Enlightenment. I think it's, uh, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name in the Enlightenment, but he basically said that, you know, the church is going to, the church is going to come to an end. We're going to, we're going to, the, there's going to be no church. Uh, because man is man is wise, and we'll, we'll, we're going to overcome this this superstition. Well, you fast forward uh, 100, 200 years, uh, the church is still here. Uh, we're we're still flourishing. God's purposes are not thwarted, uh, but God loves to upend the boaster, and that's the other side of this. People of God should be encouraged, but we should what we should also glean from this is is we should be very careful not to boast. Because uh, Buell's subtitle here is is the ironic overturning of human wisdom, and, and and why God works this way is he really he really wants to eliminate all human boasting. The problem is when we as as humans or as Christians even ourselves uh, in our own abilities, and we rely upon ourselves, or we even we even find ourselves boasting about our abilities or, or who we are um, in the scriptures. Whenever someone does that, you can almost start countdown to when this person's going to get the rug pulled on them. It happens time and time again. Sennacherib is a famous example in, uh, in Kings when he boasts against God and Isaiah, Isaiah, a good bit of his prophecy there is rebuking Assyria because God says, look, I, I, I gave you the ability to conquer all these nations. I gave you the the power to do that. And you're going to boast against me? How dare you do that? I'm, I'm going to put my hook in your nose, and I'm going to bring you back where you came from. That's what he does. He humiliates the, the king of Assyria. He kills 180,000 men of Assyria, and and uh, he takes the, he, he has the king of Assyria go back and is killed by his own sons in the, the temple of his God. Now, this is true of the wicked. When, when the wicked are boasting, their downfall is sure. And sometimes it happens in this life. Sometimes it doesn't happen until uh, their death and their judgment in hell. Uh, but there are times when God is merciful to have it happen in this life. But, but what Christians should take from this as well is we need to be very careful that we don't boast in anything. Because this same principle is true in us in a way. Because we see, we see this as well. When, when God's people boast, God can remove from them the things that they're boasting in. Even if their strengths, their giftings, uh, they can remove them. Uh, he can remove them. So we need to be very careful that we're uh, not people who boast 
because God has a way of humbling us uh, when we do that. So that's that's an overview of retributive justice. I find this very encouraging in, in scary times uh, where we just need to trust the providence of God in these things and uh, not love our own lives even to death. But then uh, there are times when the enemies of God are boasting at the gates and God is pleased to stop them in this life and foil their plans and make them fall into their own trap. So that's retributive justice. This is just so rich to consider. And uh, Bryce, you'd mentioned uh, redemptive irony as a type of irony that you wanted to talk about. And you've alluded to it at several points in your response. So I hope the listener is sitting on the edge of their seat as I am even right now. Uh, what is redemptive irony and uh, what are the applications that Christians can draw from it as well? Yeah, this is sort of the other side of the coin, which is really glorious. And uh, I, I see this more and more as I read the scriptures. Um, I'm thankful for um, how I believe, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name who wrote the book, um, Salvation Through Judgment. Uh, Hamilton, I think is his name. I can't remember his his, his name. But he, he, he wrote a biblical theology on uh, salvation through judgment. And, and I, I think that that's really keen because what we see a lot of times is uh, when God judges the wicked, that's the time when he also delivers the righteous many times through the same, the same exact means. And we see this sort of redemptive irony uh, play out in multiple ways. And I just want to give a couple of principles that uh, we see in the scriptures. The first of those is power perfected in weakness. And you see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And following, I think this passage is a key text for why God uses irony uh, all throughout the scriptures. I think Paul sort of gives us some really didactic teaching of all the things that I'm saying here as to why God does this. Why does God do things in ways that that seem like He pulls the rug out from the wicked? He makes us feel like uh, you know Psalm 73. I was reading that this morning. Uh, the, the psalmist is tempted to go well. Why, Lord, are you you're, you're letting this wicked man get rich and 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 he's fat and he has no concerns? He doesn't, and, and he's even tempted. He confesses, "I'm tempted to envy this man uh, who's wicked." Uh, but then he says, "God gave me the grace to see what was his true end." I came to my senses and I saw uh, this is the end of that man. You've set him in slippery places. Now, why why does God do that? Why does God uh, do things this way? Why does He give His own people the feeling oftentimes that they're they're on the losing end, and they're in a, in a time of suffering. Why does God do this? Well, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul uh, talks about that the word, of, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this exemplifies this whole thing. Uh, the cross is the very uh, pinnacle of, 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 of redemptive irony and retributive irony. Uh, he goes on to say, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And, and, and we see, uh, he goes on to say, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are. And why does he do all this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's ordered all these things in such a way that we have no boast before God. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he, he says something very ironic there. He, he, he talks about his, his apostolic credentials are his sufferings, uh, contra the super apostles uh, who are, who are uh, saying Paul is not an apostle. He says, look at my sufferings. My sufferings are the proof that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he ends that, that whole uh, section by saying, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that, that's a very ironic statement because God is in the business of uh, making strength out of weakness. And that's the way he works uh, through us, his people. And that, that's, that's, that's a glorious thing. Why does he do that? Uh, to show his glory. Uh, his glory is, is evident. Uh, and and no, no boasting goes to man. And there are so many examples of this uh, throughout the Bible. I gave one vivid one there. Uh, of course, there's how many times in redemptive history does God uh, bring about uh, the birth of, of a child from a barren woman who <laughs> has no prospects for, for children? Why does God do that? Why does God make Isaac and Rebecca wait for decades to uh, have uh, a son uh, to continue that line of promise? No, no doubt Isaac uh, knew from Abraham, we've been promised offspring. Uh, that's going to have uh, they have some sort of messianic expectation there. I think coming down from all the way from Adam and Eve, uh, but but it's withheld from us. So Isaac Isaac prays and God gives them conception, uh, gives the barren woman conception. Uh, you have the same thing with Rachel, uh, and 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 also others as well. Uh, you have also impossible victories by small armies. Uh, why does God do that? God brings Israel out of Egypt and then. He makes it abundantly clear to them so many times. Uh, now you're gonna you're gonna win our you're gonna win battles against these really strong armies, and uh, you, you don't boast in that because it's clear that you you're outmatched, you're outgunned, you're you're you know you're outsmarted. But what does he do? He rains he rains hail from the sky that that kills more people than the army does, and you know it, just these improbable victories from small armies. Uh, Gideon's army, Gideon's three hundred. Your army's too big. Uh, why does he do this? Again, God wants all the credit. He wants to be glorified and that, that he did it, and we had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, so we see that that as well, I think, comes to its pinnacle in uh, the foolishness of what we preach. All, As I said before, all of those examples of uh, irony really prepare us for what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, and and we have, I've already read this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the sermon of the soaring I will thwart. And, and it, it's in that very act of the cross of Christ that, that ignominious death 
which which most who witnessed it completely misunderstood. Uh, but if they if they'd seen that principle of irony throughout the scriptures, and seen that with the veil removed, the cross makes perfect sense. It's God uh, in in weakness. Uh, bearing that curse of sinners, redeeming weak sinners, becoming as they are in the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he, he dies their death uh, and transfers that righteousness uh, to them. It makes weak people strong. And so this, this, this is an encouragement to the church as, as we think about uh, how, can we, how, can we, uh, how can we serve the Lord as, as people who have indwelling sin remaining? Well, God continues to desire his church to uh, boast in their weakness. And, and we just need to constantly remember this, that, that none of us should boast before God, uh, but that we should, we should continue to boast in our weaknesses. Uh, because as, as Paul said, our, our strength is, our boast is in our weakness because that is, that is uh, the power of God. Uh, working in us. And this should be great encouragement to the church that God continues to use us as weak vessels to, uh, to uh, spread uh, his kingdom uh, throughout the earth. And he will continue to do that. That should give us confidence, not in our own abilities, not in the, the ways we, uh, the, the talents we have in our church, the abilities we have, the great things that we do. It is, it is the Lord of glory who works through uh, broken uh, sinners um, who who have no means to bring these things about in their own uh, ways? Uh, just to give you an example of this, how how do we wh- what do we do? We're we're surrounded by pagans in this country. Our 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 country. They, it's not just our leaders. Our our neighbors. They love they love uh, all the things that God hates, and and we're, we seem to be losing control. A lot of people are are anxious about this. Uh, and some people are tempted to try to find theological ways to justify um, taking back over uh, the country, uh, Reconstructionism. Uh, but, you know, in these times of, of, of being outgunned and outmatched and outnumbered, uh, does the church need to be discouraged? Uh, well, no, because <laughs> those are the times where God really can do amazing things uh, when we seem to be outmatched, outgunned, outnumbered. And these are the times where we should look at those things that happen in, in, in the history of redemption and go, no, you know, God is here. God is expanding his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it doesn't matter what uh, things look like. Uh, it matters what God's really doing. And I think uh, in, in this light, we need to, we need to continually remind ourselves of these things because uh, as we, as we are continuing to be a, a church uh, made up of indwelling sinners in a pagan world, uh, we need to remember that God is 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 His hand of providence is over all of these circumstances for His good, for His glory, and for our good. And so that that's one principle: the uh, power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, I have two more of these, uh, which I think are helpful. Uh, I just want to briefly talk about uh, this principle of that we see throughout Scripture of what is meant for evil, uh, God meant for good. And 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 we th- this this phrase actually comes from. Uh, Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21, uh, where Joseph uh, tries to comfort his brothers relating the fact that there's no, there's no uh, bitterness. He's not going to kill them after uh, Jacob dies. Uh, but he, he wants them to know, look, you, you, you sold me into slavery. That was a wicked act. But uh, God actually had a plan for that. He, he 
use he intended that uh, for the good of his people and for your own good, even though you perpetrated the act. And and we see this this still this still goes on. This goes throughout all the scriptures like this. What God, what people, what sinful people mean for evil, God means for glory. This is the same thing as as uh, Wiley Coyote here. He he creates this evil instrument to capture the roadrunner, but the roadrunner use by those very things he escapes. That's his that's his escape. Uh, and so uh, God is blessing us. This is difficult. This is difficult uh, when when uh, let's say something bad happens to you. Uh, you have your car stolen. You have your house broken into. Uh, you know, someone maligns you, uh, this is difficult, but, but we need to train ourselves to react as Joseph did. And as our Lord did what God, what, what the, what the sinner intends for evil, wicked purposes, uh, God uses to bless us. And, and that is a, that is a weighty reality that we need to prepare ourselves to think about before the difficulty comes upon us because. Uh, we need to have our minds prepared to respond uh, in those ways. Uh, more, a lot more can be said uh, about that reality. Uh, I think Romans eight twenty eight is the, the sort of uh, really clear uh, way we see this um, in, in our lives. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's all things, not just some things. Uh, but I want to move on for the sake of time to uh, the last one because I I think this is this is also really important. These all and these three all sort of go together as as redemptive, as ironic redemptive principles uh, that are throughout the scriptures. But the last one is is faith in unseen realities contradicts superficial appearances. I'm I'm not making these up myself again. I, I mentioned my indebtedness to to Greg Beal. These these are all things that are in redemptive reversals. Um. But this is a really important one. Faith in unseen realities contradicts uh, superficial appearances. And this is really important, and it goes with the last two things that I said. Um, this this is actually the point I think of uh, Hebrews, uh, particularly chapter eleven, uh, which you, you, most of you know very well. Uh, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's that's verse one. But verse six says, "And without faith, it is impossible to please Him." For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And Hebrews is written to a, a suffering community of Christians who need encouragement. And, and what does the, what does the uh, apostle do? He directs them to the fact that, hey, uh, you know, God's people, uh, the most faithful of them, uh, suffered as seeing one who was invisible. And, and this is, you're not unique here. This is not unique for you. Uh, this is this is all the people of faith. And what is faith itself? Faith itself is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Are are you are you downtrodden at the things you're experiencing, at the the persecutions, at the people mocking you, at the loss of property, uh, imprisonment? Well, uh, I just want to assure you, the apostle says that. The most faithful people you can think of throughout the whole scriptures. This was their this was their heritage. This was what they experienced, and this is the very act of faith itself. Is all the things that you see with your physical eyes, or not all the things, but many of the things you see with physical eyes, are encouraging you to uh, live for the world and to capitulate uh, to to the sinful world. Uh, but 
But what is really happening underneath is uh, is the glory of God and, and the purposes of God uh, all all working sometimes in unseen ways. And that's what faith itself is. is faith is, is, uh, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have to believe in, th- in unseen realities uh, that we don't always see with our physical eyes. Sometimes we see the opposite. And this is, this is how the apostle encourages uh, the Hebrew Christians. Uh, we see this also in Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So uh, having conviction in unseen realities is a, is a very uh, big theme throughout the scriptures. And, and, and the Hall of Faith, uh, as we call it, uh, illustrates this. <clears throat> Hebrews 11. Uh, many of, of the people uh, died in faith. Actually, he says these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, uh, that city of destruction, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, an invisible one. Uh, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And just some illustrations of this, we think of Noah, Noah being warned, as, as uh, it says in verse 7, by God concerning events as yet unseen, he constructs an ark for the saving of his household. And we have Abraham, he went out, was called uh, out of his land uh, to a place that he was received to, to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Uh, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land that he was promised to receive as an inheritance. Um, uh, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, uh, he offers up Isaac, uh, to whom he was the very one to whom God had said to him, through offspring, your offspring shall be named. <clears throat> he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promise. You see this in Moses. I think this is very vivid and very applicable for us. Uh, by faith, Moses, when he was called, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, we we assume uh, we don't have a lot of detail on this, but we assume uh, he he grew up with all the privileges of a aristocrat, uh, um, Egyptian uh, person living in the uh, house of Pharaoh, which you can. Use your imagination there. He's prob- I, I assume he had great benefits above his brethren. He, he, he had access to all the treasures of Egypt, uh, the, the author seems to imply. Uh, but, but, but he chose himself uh, to, to rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He could have just, he could have just uh, not said anything. He could have just uh, lived his life in the courts of Egypt and had all the, all the uh, pleasures he could ever want. Uh, but what, what does the text say? This is very significant. He considered the reproach of Christ. He, was, he considered the reproach of Christ uh, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Uh, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing one who is invisible. And, and there, are, there are so many other examples uh, but but the he in Hebrews eleven the apostle says and all these though commended through their faith 
did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And that is that city which is to come. So uh, the application of this is, is, is primarily that we constantly have before our eyes uh, what are those unseen realities that we, we don't, the, with, our, with our mind's eye, uh, those unseen realities that we don't see all around us every day with our, with our physical eyes. And that is uh, having God's word in our hearts, having the, the, the truths of the new Jerusalem and the, the glorious uh, revelation of our triune God. Uh, those things have to take up our imagination and our thoughts constantly in numerous different ways because what's around us is uh, a tantalizing, uh, tempting uh, Egypt. And God's people have to have on their minds that city which is to come. And it's, it's going to, it's many times, uh, it's going to look to us uh, like the best thing, uh, humanly speaking, is for us to capitulate. Uh, you know, boy, I sure, I sure could have a more comfortable life if I wasn't seeking the city which is to come. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's, uh, that's something we have to have before our minds constantly. That's the exhortation of, of, of the whole book of Hebrews, I believe, is that we have to persevere, even though it doesn't make sense to our flesh. Uh, but also, too, this has application to all the other things we've said, that uh, things aren't often as they appear to be. Uh, you just think back to uh, maybe Elisha's. I, I think this is a very encouraging thing. Elisha's uh, surrounded in Dothan by the hordes of the Syrians, and his his uh, attendant uh, is is very fearful. And he he's what what are we going to do? He wakes up and and they're surrounded by these this army of Syrians. They're they're done for. We can only imagine what will happen to them as a result of this. Uh, Elisha is a most wanted person in Israel by the Syrians. Uh, but then what does what does Elisha say? He says to the the uh, the attendant, you know, there's there's more there's more with us than with them, and and I can just imagine the look on this man's face when when Elisha tells him this, like, well, what do you mean? I mean, we're in this small town of Dothan. Who's gonna um, who's gonna stand up and and help us through this? Uh, but what what is what is what happens? Elisha prays to God and says, God, o- open his eyes, open his eyes, and let him see. Uh, that 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 there's more with us than with him, and and he 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 sees with the with the with the eyes of faith given to him by the Lord, and what does he see? He sees he sees legions of angels uh, round about him, and I think uh, we shouldn't expect that <laughs> as believers in in this age. Uh, if God uh, that that's not what happens, that's not the experience of, of Christians. Uh, but but yet the principle is the same. Uh, we we serve a God who commands uh, legions of angels, and and I think the Lord Himself probably has may have may have had this event in mind when He uh, says to Peter in the garden, Peter, uh, um, I could command legions of angels uh, to to put a stop to this, uh, my arrest. Uh, uh, but his kingdom is not of this world and and it's his will it's the will and providence of god that he would be captured and so we need to see god's hand in this 
that when, when things seem difficult to us, God has legions of angels all around us uh, that, that he could use to intervene in any given uh, time. So we, just, we, we need to rest our heads upon the fact that God's providence is such that anything that happens to us is ordered by him for his glory and for our own good. And we need to submit to that. We need to submit to that. But it is a glorious thing. And I'll just, I'll just wrap up uh, by saying I, I, I agree with Beale. I think that uh, irony is one of the major thematic threads of the scripture. And again, I, I want to end by saying I think the pinnacle of this is, is, is the cross. You have Satan uh, who's, who's trying to uh, bring an end to this offspring uh, that we that was prophesied in Genesis three fifteen, and God uses the very instrument that he he wanted to he wanted to crush the heel of the Messiah. He wanted to bruise the heel of the Messiah. God uh, pulls the rug on him and to disarm and openly shame the principalities and powers of this darkness. Uh, and he he uses that very instrument of judgment, the cross, that was bruising the heel of of the Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. And and that's that's going to be our we're going to walk in the same footsteps of of Christ until He returns and ultimately um, judges the wicked finally rids us of sin. Uh, we're going to live in an ironic world that gives God glory uh, by um, weak people who He uses to triumph over sinners, and we can rejoice in the fact that one day the Lord will return. He will put all His enemies under His feet. He's already doing that, and uh, we we will, as his people, because of him, we will reign with him, and we will praise him for all eternity for his power being made perfect in weakness, and particularly at, at, at the cross, and uh, we will serve him uh, forever with joy and gladness, despite what we feel in this life. And I think there's so much there to encourage us. So many more things that could be said. I, I highly encourage you to uh, get a copy of this book. It's only about 190 pages or so. Almost everything I said that was right and good came from this book. Uh, so I encourage you to read it, be encouraged, and may God help you uh, through this particular time of, of his, re- his redemptive history. Amen. In this conversation, we have been speaking with uh, Bryce Bigham. Uh, he's given us an update of uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. He's talked to us about a biblical theology of irony, both from uh, the distinction he's made between retributive uh, irony and redemptive irony. And he's given us several applications uh, related to uh, this theme that we've been considering. So, brother, thank you so much for uh, joining us, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Been my privilege. And uh, to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace, and we hope that this conversation has been profitable to you.